We're doing a series called Dealing with the Death Parade. Let me make this comment. The graphic is not meant to scare you, but it is meant to make you think about where we are. To help you think about where we are, in particular, in our current context of the nation. We're dealing with a lot of scary things that are coming down the pipe. And sometimes I look at all this and I think, good grief. If this is what we're dealing with and my son is three, what's it going to look like when he's 30? How is the landscape going to be better? Or how is it going to be worse? So one thing that we looked at last week is the problem that we have is that the wrath of God is being poured out, presently speaking, because of unrighteousness. And not just unrighteousness due from sin, but the fact that people try to suppress it, cover it up, so that it can't be known. They're trying to get rid of God in every situation. That's what we're dealing with. Now, I originally told you this series was going to last nine weeks. It's now been bumped up to 11. You're not surprised, I understand. But the reason is, is because as we started to get into this text, and if you wouldn't mind, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1. As we start to get into this text, in Romans 1, verses 16, 17, 18, we come across three attributes of God that are mentioned. My goal for this week was to take all three and try to cram them into just this Sunday. Then I thought you guys didn't want to sit that long. It would be ridiculous for me to put three sermons in one. I asked Emily's advice. She said it's okay to divide them up. There you go. (laughs) You just got to thank you up here. So there you go. But if you look at Romans chapter 1, look at verse 16. We're going to deal with this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what we're going to deal with today is the power of God. What I'm going to ask you to do, if you notice in your booklet, you've got about four pages per sermon. You're getting to take your own notes. The beautiful thing about taking your own notes is you can leave out all the stuff that you don't care that I said. Maybe your notes are only two sentences long. I don't know. We prayed. We left. Who knows? But whatever the Lord lays on your heart to get out of today. Today we're going to focus on the power of God. I'm going to ask you to take one page and we're going to be dealing with the power of God, the righteousness of God, and the wrath of God over the next three Sundays. I'm going to ask you to just take one page, page and a half or whatever for each one. That way you don't run out of room. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay, great. Let's start with a quote. I think that A.W. Tozer is probably one of the most insightful men I've ever read in my life. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Would you agree? Some of you don't. Think about this. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Why is that? Because every way that you operate your life stems from your core conviction about who's in charge. This whole problem that we have with sin running rampant right now, it's all an authority problem. That's what it all is. Who has the ultimate authority? Who has the ultimate say in right and wrong, good and bad, evil and righteousness? Who has that say? And most importantly, do I have to pay attention to it? See, there's where the rub comes. Is it just authoritative in the here and now? 
was that just in a book written long, long time ago? I don't need to pay attention to it. Or is it actually the fact that God has spoken and I have to deal with it? Now that ups the stakes because accountability becomes high. Here's some scary things that we found, okay? This is from a, uh, what is it called here? Uh, the State of Theology. If you want to type in, I think it's the thestateoftheology.com or .org. You have to be careful, so Google it first. But this is a 2008 study that was given. Here's the first thing that's mentioned here. 63% of Americans see the Holy Spirit as a force and not a person. Now, immediately you're like, okay, we're blaming Star Wars for that one, right? The force is with you, Okay. Some people might even think that the Holy Spirit looks like Yoda. I don't think so, okay? 63%. You know what this tells you? And it's, it's pretty obvious. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is personal. Just kind of there. Nebulous. Distant. The Holy Spirit can't be known. Let's be honest. As Christians, sometimes some of us are a little scared of the Holy Spirit, Unless you've come from a more Assemblies of God, Pentecostal background, something like that. If you, especially if you grew up Baptist. Baptist, right? But sometimes, why? Because we're really good with God and the Son. We love that. Holy Spirit, I don't know. Right? We worship two people of the Trinity sometimes. Strange. Holy Spirit is totally 100% God. But he's just a force. He's not a person. It's not what Scripture says. How about the next one was scary? Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 68% of U.S. adults disagree, and another 8% aren't sure. 76% of adults in America do not understand the seriousness of sin, and they do not look at it the way that God does. Now, here's the problem. That's adults. That's a That's a... A blanketing of people. We're not just talking about Christians or we're not segmenting. We're talking about adults in general. 76%. Do you realize that one sin is enough to damn you? The Bible testifies to it. The wages of sin are death. For all have. See what I'm saying? We know this. We get it. One sin puts us out of right relationship with God. And we're not only sinners by committing sin, we're also sinners by nature because we're born into sin. You don't think you're born into sin? Have a child. Sin. How about the next one? This one narrows it up a little bit, but I found this probably the most alarming one. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78%, hold on, of evangelicals agree to this. Which means that we sing worship and we adore and we are learning about this entire time just someone that God created, not the Creator. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. I found this quote interesting as well from the same person. I believe that there's scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced, finally, to imperfect or ignoble thoughts about God. If you want to know, both of these quotes are found in A.W. Tozer's little bitty book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to read it. It will melt your skull. I don't know about you, but sometimes Christians, we need some skull melting. It's okay. 
ignoble thoughts about God, improper thoughts about God. What do you think about God? That's what we're going to take a look at for the next three weeks. We're going to wrestle with the idea of who is God, what is the word said about God. I think you're going to find this a little unbelievable, but I'm going to do little preaching and a lot of scripture reading. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm pretty scared to death that I would misrepresent God in some way. To me, that's frightening. How about this? An attribute. Let me give you a definition when we talk about the attributes of God. If you want to write this down, great. An attribute is a property which is intrinsic to its subject. I have one pen. Does anybody need one? Only one. Magic. Doesn't even smell like me, so you're safe. Anybody? Okay, just making sure. A property which is intrinsic to its subject. It's what makes it distinguished or identifiable. That is Chafer's definition. It's something that makes somebody distinguished or identifiable. It's how you're known. It's what defines you. It's what characterizes you. It is something that when somebody says it, that's who that is. You immediately know. You immediately know who that is. It goes without saying that we must know our God. If He has loved us, if He has saved us, if He has forgiven us, if He is abundant in mercy, as the Scriptures claim to be, but not only that, back it up one step. If He is the Creator of all things, and we are His creation, we are automatically in a position that obligates us to know Him, and not only that, care only about His opinion toward us. No other opinion matters. Anything that anyone else would ever say would be considered a blink compared to God's timeless and unending word toward us. We grasp that? We get that? Yes? Everybody's stunned, asleep? Make it sure. Who God is, He is fully. He possesses freedom to exercise or withhold from any given situation. Let me give you the $5 word for what we're talking about when we talk about the power of God, the fact that He's all-powerful. Omnipotent, or the omnipotence is how we would say it, of God. Omni means all, or all of a thing. The idea of potent means that He has power or influence. The fact that He is able to act. Sometimes we think about situations in our life, And we ask the question, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. We need to pause for a second and ask the question, is God able? Does God have the ability? When we think about power, we might think of something as simple as flipping on a light switch, and next thing you know, we have a greater means of seeing. One terrifying mark of power that's been listed in history is the dropping of the bomb in Hiroshima. Some of you know that it was so powerful of an impact that it actually left shadows on the buildings for years. Shadows permanently on buildings for years. Power. And yet no matter how small or how horrific we can imagine the links of power, God is above and beyond all of that. Above and beyond. Now understand this. Just because God is powerful doesn't mean He can do everything. God does not sin. 
And God does not operate in a way that is contrary to his nature. If he did that, he would undo his attributes. He would undo the very properties or characteristics that define him as good and holy. In fact, we would go as far as to say this, and we're going to talk about this next week. We can't begin to understand what is good and holy without God defining it for us. Why? Because it all started in him. Everybody with me? Okay. I'm going to ask you that a lot. Feel the need to today. He does not contradict his character ever. He is truth. Therefore, he is necessarily consistent. What's one way that you know that things are true? It's consistent. You're talking to your child and they begin to tell you a lie. And you sit here and you think in your mind, this story has more holes than Swiss cheese. What in the world is going on? And that gives you the confidence to say, wrong. You are lying to me. Lack of consistency. God is consistent in his character. He can never contradict. This is also important to understand. From reading scripture, we find out that the Lord is persuasive. He is not coercive. I think that's important to understand. Try reading through the situation between God and Pharaoh and sending Moses and Aaron as his mouthpiece and ministers to him. He repeatedly offers Pharaoh the opportunity to get out of the calamity that he's destined for. And why did the wrath of God come upon him? Because he suppressed righteousness. He loved ungodliness. And so we see a very real demonstration of the wrath of God poured out in history on someone. Two things that define God's omnipotence. Number one is ability. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, turn to, you don't have to turn there. Look up to the screen. We're going to turn to some things here in just a second. Genesis 18, verse 14, if you want to write it down. It's interesting because Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is about 90 years old. And they get word that they're going to be pregnant. Now notice, it's not word that they are pregnant. They get word that they're going to be pregnant, right? And all God's people said, uh-huh. Yeah, right. Right? Anybody over 70 thinking about repopulating the earth? Anybody? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We just don't think that way. And yet here's what they're told, and they laugh it off. Oh, whatever. And I love it because God responds, Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. His ability. Now, here's what's interesting about this statement if you look at it. It's one thing for an all-powerful God to predict the future. He knows everything, so he can see what's going to happen in the future, yes. It's another thing for him to be orchestrating all of history and existence in order to make sure that that history unfolds exactly as he said. That's power. That's ability. A second point that we need to see about this is the fact that he has authority, not just ability. Not only is he able to do these things, he has the authority to do these things. In fact, if you think about any of these institutions that are trying to gain power in the world's scope today, you, you quickly find out that money's not enough. They can have a lot of money. And money helps to gain power. But what they ultimately want is power. 
They want influence. They want authority over people. They want to be able to run other people's lives. Money is a way to help get that done. But if there's a higher bidder, you have immediately lost authority. Here's a good passage in Luke chapter 8. You can just write this down, look on the screen. Whenever the man with the many unclean spirits are in him, the spirits legion, for he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. Notice, they could not stay. He commanded them. That's authority. Unclean spirits leave and they're gone. How about in verse 32? We look down, uh, sorry, of the screen, 32. Notice it says, Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. Notice that the demons have to ask Jesus' permission to do what they want to do. Why? He has the authority. And look what it says. And he gave them permission. Let me ask you a question. If he didn't give them permission, what were they going to do? Nothing. That's power. That's authority. Now, we're all familiar with Genesis 1-1, correct? That's probably the greatest display of power that our minds can begin to conceive. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the first place I want you to turn in your Bible is actually going to be Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. And I am preaching with notes today, so this is really strange. Bear with me. Hebrews 11. You probably know this commonly as the faith chapter. And it goes through and it lists all kinds of individuals throughout biblical history who had an extraordinary confidence in what God had told them and God had blessed them richly as a result of it. But I want us to look just at verse 3 because it goes with this idea. By faith we understand that the worlds, and that word should probably be better translated if you have a marginal note as ages, aeonius is the Greek word, that the worlds, the ages were prepared By the word of God. No one gave God Lincoln Logs and said, get to work. He had nothing to start with at the beginning. And he spoke. And there was something. This is what we commonly refer to as ex nihilo creation. Out of nothing creation. That's power. God's power, God's authority to command what is not to be. It was not there. He speaks a word. It is there. That's power. Notice it says, by the word of God, here's the reason. So that what is seen, the creation that we see, was not made out of things that were visible. This would probably be given the greatest explanation that we understand when we talk about what can I grasp as far as power when you walk out of here and you're enjoying the beautiful day that he's given us and everything that you see understand that it didn't start with previous materials as these chairs or this carpet or this roof may have what it started with was an absolutely blank and absent slate and then when God spoke it came into existence it previously was not and now it is I don't know about you but that hurt my brain for a little while How about another great example, and and one of the most powerful things that you could ever study in the Scripture, the names of God. Turn with me all the way back over to Genesis. Let's look at chapter 17. Genesis 17. Abraham had made the mistake of trying to help God out. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, God doesn't like that. If you're trying to steal His glory, you're cheapening His work. 
And he does not care for that. And so what he tried to do was said, hey, let's devise a plan and get together with this woman, Hagar, and yeah, we'll have some offspring. And therefore, God will look good because exactly what he said was fulfilled. How'd that work out? Didn't, did it? In fact, look at the very last verse. We talked about this a long time ago in Foundational Framework. Look at the very last verse of chapter 16. Look at verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now look at 17.1. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, everybody see the gap? Remember in the originals, there were no chapter and verses. This was just line after line. For 13 years, God was silent because of Abram's sin. 13 years of God not talking to you. When he was hanging out, letting you know he's going to bless you, sending you places, promising you great things, and then all of a sudden, dead. No conversation. That's odd. It's scary. But look how God reintroduces himself into Abram, and he brings a new way to be identified. He says here, now when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. This is the word that we probably might be familiar with if we're big Amy Grant fans, right? We normally say El Shaddai, but probably the better translation is El Shaddai is what it is. The Almighty One is who this is. Any Amy Grant fans? I had a girl in my last church that dressed up like Amy Grant for Halloween. Strange people in Indiana. All right. But it means Almighty One, the self-sufficient one. The one who needs nothing because he can do everything. He's able. He has all authority. How about this? Turn over to Exodus. And I'm thankful for the Lord because when I sat down and said, Lord, how am I going to deal with just the power of God? Next thing I know, my mind is just flooded with things. So I'm very grateful for that. Probably one of the most powerful scenes that if you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially if you've been in the Deuteronomy class for Sunday school time, you found that this is an event that is brought up over and over because it left such a mark on the people that were privy to this information. Exodus 20, this is the giving of the law, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. But what I want you to see is the response of the people afterwards. Look at verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. They all backed up. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not Elohim speak to us or we will die. Anybody ever been in a conversation with somebody you thought it was you're going to die afterwards? I feel like that when I talk to Tom. Other than that, no. It's more like I want to die. But hey, hey, hold on, stop! Don't even bring your sorrow. Number one, you ever talked to Tom? Number two. Number two, isn't it far better to depart from here and be with the Lord? See, I got the Bible on my side. You guys do what you want. Apostle Paul agrees with me. So moving on. The sound of his voice, the power that came off of the mountain, they heard God speak. He told Moses, gather the people up. I got something to say. All the people gathered up in anticipation. When God got done, they said, no more. I might die. 
if God ever talks to me in this way again, my heart might stop. That's amazing. That's power. In fact, there's a lot that goes on with power in his word that he speaks. When the soldiers came up and said, we're looking for Jesus, and the mob, remember this? And Jesus stepped forward and he said, it doesn't say I am he. It doesn't say that. You'll notice that he is in italics in your passage. He says, I am. And what do they do? They fall down. They can't stand. They can't stand when Jesus speaks of himself. That's power, guys. It's power. How about this? I don't want to have you turn all the way there. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 is very interesting because there are six or seven different instances where this word is used in Revelation and only of God. Look what it says. I am the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and end is the idea, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. There is, there is his eternality. That's another attribute. And it says here, the Almighty. Everybody see that? This is the New Testament understanding of what El Shaddai would be. It is the Greek word known as panto crater. And just spell crater with a K, you're going to be fine, okay? Panto crater is the idea there. The idea is that he is the one who holds sway over everything. He is the one who has his hand on everything. He is the one who is guiding history to its end goal. Turn with me, if you will, over to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40. My wife is teaching children's church right now, so the length of my sermon got real personal. I'm glad you guys have a sense of humor this morning. That's good. It's real rough preaching to sticks in the mud. You guys are great. I just want you to take in for a moment everything that this says about God. Chapter 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God, and notice what you have here. Capital L, lowercase ORD. Everybody see that? Anybody remember what that represents? Master. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. Master. And then because after that, it's all caps G-O-D. That's Yahweh. Adonai, Yahweh. Master, self-existent, self-sufficient one is what it means. So notice he says here, Behold, Adonai, Yahweh will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. In fact, this really helps you understand Jesus' words in Matthew 23 when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing this is the heart of god for his people and if you want another good comparison verse to this in revelation twenty two twelve, the very last chapter of the bible that speaks of jesus's return and how he will bring his reward his recompense with him to pay back everyone according to what they've done whether good or evil so this totally matches together verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Has anybody done that? No, only one person, right? Right? Yahweh. Anytime it asks a question, answer the question. No, no one's done that. No one's done that. Only God. 
Verse 13, who's directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. Has anybody informed God what he needs to be doing? No, not at all. In fact, that's, that's, that's the very end of Romans 11 when you look at that. How unsearchable, how inscrutable are his ways. No one's his counselor. How about 14? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? Has anyone taught God anything? No. In fact, let me give you some homework real quick throughout this week to reinforce this point. Job chapter 38 verse 1 through chapter 42 verse 6. After Job's friends stop rambling on for 36 chapters. And Job's trying to answer and deal with how weird they are and still represent God faithfully. God decides he wants to say something. And so from Job 38.1 to Job's actual response in 42 verses 1 through 6, you can read all three and some odd verses of those chapters and you will not be lacking on something to feast on this week that will keep your devotional life on fire. It is incredible how God reveals himself. How about this, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. In other words, because the best cedars came from Lebanon, and that was what was used in order to build the temple of God and also Solomon's personal house as a king, they're saying we can make all the altars in the world and burn these to God, and Lebanon does not contain enough precious awesome trees in order to do justice to the worship that he is worthy of in fact look at the next verse or the next sentence nor its beasts enough to burn offerings there's not enough sacrifices to sacrifice sufficiently to praise him maximally that's how awesome and powerful and wonderful he is Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And not just meaningless, but the Hebrew word used here is the word void. It's the idea of, and the earth was void and without form, and there was darkness over the face of the deep in Genesis. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him. And in the interest of time, we're going to move on, but you could read all the way to verse 26 and see this incredible declaration of God's worship here. How about Hebrews 1? And if there's something that you don't get, you didn't get a chance to write it down, Mitch does a fantastic job of keeping our website up to date, keeping the audio up there, getting it posted as soon as possible, editing out all the stupid things I say. So the sermons are actually way shorter online. <laughs> Hebrews 1, look at verse 3. We dealt with this at Christmas time, talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is fully God, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And here's what I want you to grasp here. And upholds all things by the word of His power. Everybody see the word for word there? It's not logos like we see in John Word in the beginning or in, in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not the same word. It's the Greek word rhema, which means his spoken word. The power of Jesus Christ's spoken word holds everything together. 
Science wants to call it atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, those types of things. The Word of God says, no, that's actually a visual representation of the fact that Jesus Christ holds everything together. And if he stops being who he is for a moment, the entire existence of everything disintegrates in a moment. Everybody's like, oh, well, we're so worried about global warming. We're so worried about climate change and all these things. I'm worried that God will stop speaking. That's my fear. That there will come some moment where God's word might not be as powerful. We know the word of God tells us that's not true, but good grief, what if? Frightening times. Notice that the word of God carries the universe to its goal. Just to give you a reinforcement of this, of how awesome this is, turn to your left to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. And this gives a wonderful declaration about the person of Jesus Christ and also helps us address maybe a, a problem that seems to have spawned from maybe what some evangelicals think about Jesus Christ being the first and greatest creation of God as a created being. Look in Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. Ah, I love the rustle of pages. You phone people will learn, it's okay. Which by the way, let me plug this real quick. If you want to go to your app store or your play store or whatever it is, literal word, literal word, it's a great app. It's a fantastic Bible app. So if you're looking for that, literal word. If that's the only note that you wrote down today, the Lord knows your heart, so check it with him, okay? The literal word. Making sure you're getting a lot out of it. Somebody laughed, that hurts. All right, verse 15. (laughs) Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Now here's probably where people get this. The firstborn of all creation. Now, number one, this makes no sense because if he's the firstborn of all creation, who birthed him? Was Mary around then? No, so that's not a good argument. So we know that what it's talking about here doesn't mean that he's a literal firstborn. However, if you're familiar with the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, does the firstborn of a family hold special rights? Yes. In fact, they receive a double portion of inheritance. Firstborn is not meant of a physical makeup or a coming into being. Jesus Christ is perfectly God, so he always has been and always will be and is presently. What it's talking about is the special rights given to him as the Son of God, the special privileges that are heaped on him, and the abilities and opportunities that he has to fulfill in his role. How about verse 16? Look, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and not just through him for him why because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord and i'll be honest with you i don't think it's going to be something where they're forced to do it i don't think the people that are in the lake of fire are going to be forced to put their knees on the ground i think when they finally get a glimpse of the majesty of who jesus christ actually is i think they're not going to be able to help but to worship him i don't think it's going to be coerced but i think they're going to be heavily persuaded by what they see in front of their eyes look at verse 17 he is before all things and in him all things hold together Cool, science has their explanations. I've got a bigger picture. It's Jesus. It's his word. It's in him all things hold together. This leads us to a beautiful point that some of you probably thought I was completely crazy last week. Chapter 5 of Romans. 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes or for everyone who is believing already. In other words, the gospel is not just the good news of Jesus Christ dying from your sins and raising from the grave. You believe in him, you immediately have eternal life. Eternal life is forever and can never be lost. You are eternally secure by his word, not your performance. In doing that, you are justified. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It is talking about being sanctified, being conformed to the image of Christ, being saved from the power of sin that wants to take over our flesh. Now you say, how in the world do you believe that? The reason is, is because the word salvation is not used in the book of Romans ever to speak of justification. When Paul wants to use justification, chapter 3, verses 20 through the end of chapter 4, He uses the word justified. But when he wants to talk about your sanctification, you being holified, if we want to say it that way, being saved from the power of sin that wants to cause you to sin, but as a Christian, he desires for you to live a new life and experience that abundant life, he uses the word salvation and saved. Let me show you. Chapter 5, verse 8. We're all familiar with this one, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still in complete rebellion against him, Christ died for us. When we hated him the most, he loved us the most. Now we understand that as a justification thing, right? Yes. But look what happens after that. Pay attention to the tenses going on here. Much more than having now been justified, justified already by his blood, we shall be saved. Does everybody see that? Having already been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Romans is about being saved from God's wrath against ongoing sin because of our suppression of the truth and ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's about Christians and non-Christians. It's about are you living by faith or are you not living by faith? And if you're not living your life by faith, you are suppressing righteousness. Therefore, the wrath of God can be against you. And we will talk about what that looks like when it unfolds. He has justified you already. But now you have the opportunity to be saved from God's wrath. Look at verse 10. Reiterates the exact same point. For if while we were enemies, right? That's when Christ still died for us. We were still sinners. Verse 8. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. There's your justification. Watch this. Much more having been reconciled, justification, we shall be. Notice that. Notice the verse 10, or the, 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 the tense of the verbs. We shall be saved by his life. Does everybody see this? The power of God in the gospel is not just able to deliver you from a destiny of the lake of fire. He is also able to cause you to live an abundant life if you live by faith. There is great power in his ongoing, saving, sanctification ministry from the power of sin and thus from his presently revealed wrath. It's a power struggle. And the power of God 
is able to overcome the power of sin in us that wants us to go where we shouldn't go, say what we shouldn't say, see what we shouldn't see, do what we shouldn't do. Christ is secured infinitely better, and it's now abundantly available to you and I by his power. At the very least, doesn't this make itself manifest in prayer? Anybody here praying folk? See, there's peer pressure to raise your hand if there's not. Okay, three of us. That might be a problem here, okay? You ever thought about why you pray? Isn't the whole fact why we bring our issues to God is because he has the power to deal with them. He not only has the ability, not only can we sit here and say, Lord, we know you are able. Does he not have the authority to deal with them? You see what I'm saying? You start living by faith in that way, you won't be able to stop what God's doing in your life. Because he is looking for the opportunity every time to exercise his power in us. It's not just that he wants to do it in general or he just put it in these pages for us to read and we're like, oh, that's really nice. I'm sure there's a coloring sheet that goes with this. No, no, no. It's so much more. Your very life he wants to instill with power. Not your power, his power. In fact, notice the end of 10. Look at verse 10. We shall be saved by him making your life better. Is that what it says? Praise God, no. If you guys looked at my life, you'd say, I don't know about the power of God compared to that. And you might think the same way about yourself. All of us know the skeletons hanging out in our closet. But I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't want to live my life. He knows my life is terrible. But he does want to take me, and he does want to demonstrate and live his life through me. I don't know about you, but that's an infinitely better existence than I could ever hope for. One of the greatest prayers I lift up to God every day is thank you for putting my life where it is because I saw where it was going. And if you wouldn't have intervened, and it's definitely an exercise of power, I would probably be dead. God is great. And what we think about him is the thing that matters most about us. If you've ever underestimated the power of God, and you say, how do I know if I've underestimated the power of God? Because you've underestimated the gift of prayer to God. You're not willing to take the time necessary to call upon him to get his power involved. And if that is an ongoing sin in your life that you need deliverance, thank you for sharing situations where a five-year-old smoking, that sounds like a good time. How do you discipline that? How do you deal with that? And then understanding, wait, God can deliver me? Yeah, that's power. That's power that overcomes the power of sin in us to want to do the things that we ought not to do. God has power, and he wants to exercise it in his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for infinite, awesome power. You are a God of power. You are a God who is able. You are a God of authority. You are a God of of words that cause people to fear and tremble and at the same time gain great assurance. Maybe we've never thought this intently upon the greatness of your power, but we serve a powerful God. We serve a God who has ability beyond our understanding.
the Apostle Paul tells us he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. Father, help us to see you in your power, to have our hunger satisfied by feeding on your power, by understanding that you are omnipotent and there is none like you. Help our hearts in comprehending. And when we feel helpless, move us to call upon you, the God of all power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.